Now, there are three types of people here today, in my estimation, in my experience. Most likely, you'll fit into one of these or a hybrid of them, of these categories. Here's the first. The idea that more, the more effort you put into your Christian faith, the more you will get out of it. You are energized by lists. You like to check things off. They give you a sense of direction and safety because you feel like you know where you're going and you know what you've accomplished. In other words, pastor, tell me what to do and I'll do it. You measure your good days by what you're able to accomplish or refrain from that day. If you hit all your spiritual requirements that day, you, you will most likely have a good day. You'll have a good day. Bible reading, journaling, praying, etc. And less time on social media, apparently and now, is the baseline to a good Christian life. And those are easily trackable. Easily trackable. Here's the second person. You're really not concerned about spiritual growth at all. You most likely have never struggled with your assurance, so spiritual disciplines seem useless and meaningless. You clearly love Christ and the gospel, but church is something you happen to do when you feel like it. You understand it's required, but it takes little priority in your everyday life. That would be person number two. Person number three, you're constantly exhausted by Christianity. Not biblical Christianity, by the way. You feel like a failure. No matter how hard you try, you are never consistent or dedicated enough. You have the same secret sin you have been struggling with for years, and no matter what Bible reading plan, devotional book, or book series you dive into, you feel lost and alone. Not lost, like not saved, but you feel confused and out of sorts. And in all honesty, church exhausts you. It's like a weekly sales meeting where you feel like the only person who shows up for the meeting with no sales to report or to report while you watch everyone crush the numbers. That's what church feels like to you. You're hoping no one asks you, how are you doing? Because you feel guilty every time you lie that you're doing great. I have always said for years, more lies are told on Sunday morning than any day of the week. And it's not your fault. It really isn't. It's the design of the local church, the unbiblical design. The problem with this third person is you know someone is going to figure out the spiritual scam you have running, and they're going to judge you for it. And so you keep people at a distance. In all three of these cases, I would argue that these are unbiblical views of Christianity. This is not what Paul has offered us. All three of these have been directly influenced by what I would say the modern day spiritual disciplines movement. The dedicated, the apathetic, and the exhausted believer is looking to themselves as the primary source of their spiritual growth. What you have been told is that if you, if you, if you've been given this gift of salvation, and now what you do with that gift determines the level of progress that you will have in the eyes of God. I have met so many people within each of these categories. And my experience with them is this. The first is confident and often judgmental. They are quick to offer a solution they have found to over or to conquering sin. Read this book, do this, dedicate yourself to this, and you will have victory like I have. The second sees legalism within that system, 
loves to point out how it's wrong, and will often admit they are apathetic to the church and Christianity. I know that's wrong, and I'm not going to do that, but they don't really know what the right solution is. The third person is at the end of their rope. If one more burden is placed on them, it may be too much. They are not celebrating their victories every week, but trying to figure out how to keep going in light of all of the failures. And in each of these cases, the person is looking within to find the approval of the Father. God must not be happy with me because look at where I am. So your spiritual growth and maturity rests primarily on yourself. It's inward, your shoulders. Again, this is why the spiritual disciplines of the 1970s has exploded in modern Christianity. It's affected more people than you realize. Spiritual growth is but a formula of spiritual habits. Right personal habits lead to progress is what we're told. So what I'm going to present to you this morning is something different, which is the part two section. Good works. Now let's talk about how do we grow. The Bible actually never points to your personal efforts as the primary means God matures you spiritually, but he does the exact opposite. He points you away from yourself. You're appointed away, not only in your salvation, God saves you, but also in the way in which God grows you. So if you're in Ephesians, we're going to be looking at chapter four. And for the sake of time, we are not going to review what I covered last week. We're going to begin in verse seven which is a very important point Paul makes for the remainder of uh, the section about the church. Look at verse 7. It says, but, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measures of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men in saying he ascended. So Paul's going to give us his explanation. What does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So what Paul is describing is what Jesus has accomplished in the gospel. It's a finished work. There's nothing left to be done. Remember, he is the one who accomplishes it. So Paul points to, in verse 7, he points to the grace we have received And it is the gospel that he's referencing here because he's pointing back to the work of Christ. And what he says next is directly connected to this concept. So Christ's work on the cross gave us forgiveness of sins. We are all credited with Christ's work on the cross. And so then he uses this language of gift, this gift we have received. And the purpose is has nothing to do with our own spiritual journey, but listen to where it connects. So the gift of the God's grace that's given to us is for the spiritual journey of the church, not you. Look at um, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I'll stop there just for a second. Notice the list that Paul provides. These are people who have been given, back in verse 7, this gift of grace. They are to take this spiritual gift and then to use it for what? Personal progress? Personal gain? 
No, it is to equip the saints. So we receive these, this gift of grace from God. He empowers us with different abilities. Obviously, there's just all these different gifts that are given. And you will expand this even more in Corinthians. And that they are used to prepare them, to prepare the saints. And what is it that they are to prepare them for? Their own spiritual journey. So the teachers of the church and the preachers of the church are designed to equip you for the work of ministry. And what's that work of ministry? Developing yourself? No, that's not what he says. So look at verse 13. What is it that Paul means by equip? Until we all attain to the unity, he used that word a lot, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to measure and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So let's, let's stop right here. To maturity and then to what? The measure of the stature, in other words, he's saying, to look like the fullness of Christ. Do you realize that Paul or any other New Testament writer never promises this to anything else other than those who are in the local church? So maturity, growth, and knowledge, transformation into the the person of Christ is never promised outside of the local church. So you will never be given the promise of maturity and Christ-likeness by your own personal efforts. You can't find a verse that's going to tell you this. Now, before I explain this point a little bit further, I think we need to finish with Paul's thought here. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer... So the thing about it, it's uh, he's gifted prophets, teachers, um, pastors, equip the saints to build them up so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I cannot tell you, especially since the age of the internet, how much crazy theology is out there. And you, church, find it your mission to bring that craziness to me and ask me my thoughts on it. And at times, I have no idea where this stuff comes from. But there are so many, so much teaching out there of people who end up going outside of the local church, outside the history, the confession of the local church, and they start believing doctrines and teachings that are absolutely contrary to the work of Christ, to the nature of Christ. This is why I spent so much time last week walking you through the history of how the local church got to where it was at. It's because we stopped listening to the preaching and the teaching that God has designed, and we started infiltrating teaching that the church had rejected 500 years ago. And yet we're allowing it to seep back in because we are not utilizing the local church the way in which it was designed to keep us from being pushed about by all kinds of crazy teaching. So back to verse 11. I'm sorry, uh, let's, I'm sorry, back to uh, verse 15. Rather, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, again, a reference to the gift, a reference to the body and all of our parts, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, let's make the two connections. What would prevent the body from working properly? One, someone who's teaching who shouldn't be. 
someone who is not equipped right. Secondly, sin, disobedience would prevent the body from working properly. So let me make this connection in reference to how we've been trained. We hear working properly and we think, well, it's our daily dedications, right? It's my devotions. It's, it's our daily disciplines. This entire section is about one thing and it has nothing to do with the individual. It says that we grow into maturity and into the likeness of Christ within the context of a local biblical church, but not just in any church, a church that is properly applying the gifts of grace. Unfortunately, there are many churches today who do not see this as their primary role, that the church is the the institution where people gather together, they become connected, they are ministrating to the word, and then they grow. Instead of preaching God's word faithfully, showing and trusting in its power, they offer topical sermons on how to improve their marriage or their parenting or their jobs or how it is that we can stop social injustice within our culture. So week after week, they point the believer back really in on themselves. They aren't being pointed to Christ. They aren't pointing to depending upon each other for the advance or their spiritual growth. It's you must try harder and do better in order to achieve this goal of whatever it is that they set before them. And I will tell you, there is no hope in resting on the power of Christ to transform them because it's resting on their ability and their level of effort. The Reformed tradition has applied these passages in what we call the means of grace. Um, this is very common for Christian um, history. We all understand when I say the word Trinity, you immediately know what I'm talking about. Uh, we take a concept in scripture, all of what the Bible has to say, and we put an application to it. Um, so we, even the, the concept of a church, I say the word church and you immediately know it's not just a called out assembly, but there's elders and deacons and pastors and they gather and they sing and there's preaching and there's accountability and there's church discipline off, off of one word. So what the reformed tradition to help explain how a believer grows and how it is that they are to be um, maturing week in and week out the way in which that it's been handed to the church traditionally, it's called the means of grace, uh, using the language of Paul that we grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, how is it that God uses this knowledge to grow us? Um, For those of you that may not know and may be new to this concept, let me give you a quick explanation of this concept. First of all, the means of grace, it's how God uses and he is nourishing us. He grows us. He's feeding us. So the more we feed on him, the more we grow. First is what we call the word. There's three, the word, sacraments, and prayer. I'll explain all three of these real quickly. So the word, God has promised, as we can see here, even in Ephesians 4, that his word, when used properly, provides the gift of grace to his people. Our knowledge is, is our knowledge of him grows. Our unity around um, the, the knowledge of God grows. And then spiritually speaking, our faith is strengthened, not only sustained, but strengthened. So it's the public preaching and teaching of God's word. Now, please understand here what I mean. I am not saying your personal time in God's word is of no value. Quite the contrary. Any consumption of God's divinely inspired word will benefit your faith. According to Paul and the rest of the New Testament, 
that is not the primary way that your faith shall be uh, strengthened. According to the word of God and according to the traditions that have been handed down to us through the church, it is the gathered church underneath the spirit gifted men who are teaching and preaching his word to equip the congregation. No, the church for 15 years, this is how they survived public, the public ministry of the word because individual personal Bibles were extremely hard to come by, especially during the New Testament era when all scripture was handwritten on uh, basically animal skin or paper that wouldn't last. And it was extremely expensive to get your hands on. So the, the churches would gather together these resources so that the, the pastors could surround themselves and dedicate themselves to it. This is why deacons exist, going back to our sermon on why we have deacons and elders. So that's the first means God, and really the, the massive means that God uses to sustain and strengthen his church. But a second mean, not less important, but equally important, are the sacraments, what we would understand to be the table and baptism. And you'll notice that there's never an instruction in the New Testament to practice these in private. You are never told to go into your closet and take communion or baptize yourself. But we seem to do this with God's word. He has commissioned it to the church. Or as some would say, he's ordained it. It's an ordinance of the church, this command, these two commands that he gives to the church. And what do both of these sacraments represent? They both represent our salvation. As often as we participate in these two, we just had a baptism service. It reminds us of what Christ has done for us. And I find it interesting that Christ didn't tell us in any shape or form uh, governing us um, let me rephrase that. Uh, both of these sacraments are designed to push you outside of yourself. You never have the promise of when you were baptized or when you take the Lord's table that that act saves you. That would mean it's dependent upon you. But these are means coming to you saying, as surely as you are consuming this and using this, the Christ comes to you and sustains you. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. We're going to gather this week, most of us are, with friends and family for a uh, tradition, Thanksgiving. And we're not just going to sit around and for a moment say we're super thankful for the United States. And then we're done. Now, there's a big tradition that we celebrate. The entire world knows about the United States Thanksgiving. At least I think so. It's very American of me to think so. Um, but what we do is there's, the, there's a celebration. It's a celebration. It's a big moment. This is a great example of seeing the design of God's meal for the believer. We gather together as one family. Everyone has an equal seat at the table of the Lord, for we all have been granted access by grace alone. You don't come to the table because you've earned it. You can disqualify yourself, but you cannot earn access to the table. So we receive God's grace once again, side by side, sitting by each other, knowing that we do not belong there, but it is God's grace that is bringing us there. And prayer is the last one. Traditionally, it's been given to us. The church has obviously been instructed to pray. And yes, it can apply to private prayer. Christ speaks of what private prayer looks like. But in general, we are often told that Paul is asking his prayers that he writes to be read publicly to the congregation that they might be encouraged. 
and prayer, in my opinion, most people see prayer as, is, um, kind of that emergency button when things go wrong. But that is not what prayer is. Prayer is the constant reminder that we are all equally dependent upon God. We pray together because without each other and without God, we are lost. We have nothing. We, so prayer is that is, this is why I love to start our services with prayer. We end our services with prayer because I want us to go to the Father together. Reminding us that all of us, including the one who is praying, all of us need to receive from God that which we cannot offer ourselves. So our spiritual growth and maturity is never dependent upon our spiritual effort, but there's the clothing thought I'm trying to get to, but the collective obedience of all of us. Can you see now why obedience is so important? and why it's referenced. To me, it just fries me when people think about obedience in a private context as if you and God are in a relationship and no one else around you matters. That is so not what obedience is for. When we are selfish, it's not affecting our relationship with God. That would mean he can't finish his work and you can thwart his work. But when you are selfish, you are affecting your brothers and sisters from receiving love. And if the body isn't functioning properly, it's not being built up as it could be. So this is why we are, when we are, I'm sorry, when we are impatient or in loving or harsh, this prevents the church from being unified and allows for strife. The church today does not know, in my opinion, or the most of the experience that I've seen in most modern churches, they just, it's, it's really hard to know and how to care for people who are suffering. Because every person that I'm, that's sitting in here today most likely is underneath some kind of form of suffering. So when I say this, you think to yourself, that sounds great, John. I don't want anybody depending on me. I can't, I can barely get myself here, let alone think about having some deep conversation about someone else. That's because You've been living alone for so long, you don't know what it looks like to live with other broken sinners. It's really hard to deal with the corruption of this world. Uh, as a pastor, I, I know most of what's going on in this congregation. For those that are willing to tell me, our elders know. I've sat down and cried with many of you in here. Uh, you have ongoing suffering, ongoing trials and struggles most likely that aren't going to go away. And I can't offer you a fix it. Uh, Gary and I were talking about this morning how sometimes God just gives you grace to get through a circumstance because there is no out. As God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For when I am made weak, Paul says, then Christ is strong in me. Church, you need to know I don't need you to be strong. The church doesn't need you to be strong. It doesn't need you to have it all figured out. It doesn't need you to have uh, this most organized life. As a matter of fact, Paul does not say those who are efficiently living the Christian life can help the body grow. It's those who are depending on grace and understanding that they have a role as broken and as messed up as it is. They can actually be encouraged and encourage other people. 
Probably one of my favorite verses for those who are hurting is when Paul says, we weep with those who are weeping, period. Sometimes the only thing you can do is cry because it's just bad. And then he says, we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And he doesn't qualify. Well, this person's weeping because of this, and this person's rejoicing because of this. We live in a broken world that God must restore, and it's not restored yet. So how is it that we go from today to tomorrow without losing hope? How is it that we go from this Sunday to next Sunday and not lose hope? How do we do that? God says his design is that all of you see how messed up you are, stop being so prideful about it, admit it, and then say, all right, I guess I'll come together. Receive his grace and use that as motivation to turn to the person next to you and say, I clearly don't have it together. You probably already know that, but I'll at least try loving you. Most likely, I'm going to disappoint you. I'll probably make you mad. By the way, I have anger issues and I'm very impatient. So do you want me to love you? And that person's like, no. (laughs) Uh, I don't think a broken church is a slogan. I'm not encouraging the world around us to come into this place because they'll be accepted for who they are. I want the world to come in here and say, oh, there is so much more to this life than what the TV and the internet and social media has been telling you. A better house, a better job, a different wife, more kids, less kids, whatever it is, less debt will not satisfy you. Go read Lamentations. It is vanity. But what does Paul say? We can have hope and not only hope, but we can be transformed and changed into the image of Christ when we function properly. So church, my encouragement to us is that we take Paul at his word. We take Christ at his word in John 15, that we can have his joy by loving each other, by unifying ourselves, trusting in God's means in the public teaching and preaching of his word, in the table and in prayer as we gather to uh, to use these means. If you're sitting here this morning and you feel as if COVID-19 kicked your spiritual progress in the teeth, That's by God's design. Some people say, is God mad at America? Nope. Uh, We've had worse things than COVID-19 hit our world. But we do believe in our confession, chapter 5, that God will use means to cause us to open our eyes and say, this is not what I need. Christ is what I need. And how is it that I'm going to get Christ? It's not by your effort. It's so hard. Trust me. I know you're sitting here like, okay, John, what do I do? This is great. I love it. Now what do I do? Like, well, here's your application. Show up next Sunday. <laughs> if you're weak and like just, I, I have nothing to offer. Great. Come receive. Just, just get here. Let us love on you. Let us care for you. Let us prove to you that We know you're messed up. We know that you have problems and that we're going to love you anyways. And yes, we're hypocrites to boot. I'm one of them. That criticism couldn't be more true of our own church. But it's God's grace that will break down those hypocritical walls. And so trust it. And those of us who are here and we're getting it and we love it, start thinking about what's going to make you uncomfortable. And that is having real conversations, caring for buddy, 
scheduling an appointment, inviting someone over. And I know that's a, it's a complicated situation. So let's use technology, texting, calling, checking in on each other. Because that is what can get someone from day one to day two. And I can promise you, church, depression is at a level that it's never been at within the last 15 years. Suicide is at a level that it's never been at in the last 15 years. If you think people are fine, it's a lie. There ain't nobody good in this room besides the two-year-olds who are having a blast right now. 